0: This transition to zero-emission bus is well underway, and many transit agencies are off to a good start, but it is so complicated. And a lot of people don't realize that it's not simply a matter of buying a bunch of electric buses, finding a place to plug them in, and then off you go. Not nearly
1: as simple as that. Excited to have with us today as our newsmaker interview, David Kim. David is a good friend of mine. Uh, He has appeared in actually one of my most recent books, Conversations on Equity and Inclusion in Public Transportation, while he was Secretary of Transportation for California. So, David, thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you so
0: much. It's it's great to be on with you again, and and, um, thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. David, now you are the Senior Vice President and Principal for National Transportation Policy and Multimodal Strategy for WSP USA, which is one of the big consulting firms. And you've been there, what, for over a year now, right? Just a little over a year, that's right. And I just want to take a minute and share with our listeners a little bit about your background because it is so rich and varied. You and I share uh, experiences uh, in both the public and private sector, but a lot of your career has been in the public sector. Just prior to your stint as almost three years as Secretary of Transportation in California, you were Vice President of Government Affairs, at Hyundai Motor Company. And prior to that, you worked for the Federal Highway Administration where you were Deputy Administrator and Associate Administrator for Policy and Government Affairs, a very important position for five and a half years. Then you were Deputy Assistant Secretary for Governmental Affairs at the U.S. Department of Transportation, big job. And prior to that, for over about five and a half years, you were Deputy Executive Officer uh, at LA Metro. And again, a very big position. Prior to that, you were Deputy Director uh, for the Washington D.C. office of the California Governor, Gray Davis, who many of us remember for almost five years, and prior to that, you were Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Congressional Affairs. Dude, you have a, a very great background, David, for the work you're doing.
0: Thanks, Paul. It just means I've been around for a while, but it's uh, it's you know we all have a, a calling in life, and I've always felt that public service was uh, what I was meant to do. Even though I'm in the private sector now, but you know, being in this role makes a lot of sense and it's it's exciting because the vast majority of our clients are are in the public sector, local, state and federal agencies. And it's really fun to work with them. And, and I feel like we're an extension of what they do in terms of uh, selecting projects, delivering them, helping them with funding, strategy and policy. So it's really an extension of uh, what uh, I've been able to do in the public sector.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that everyone fully understands or appreciates around the world the role that these big consulting firms play in transit agencies. I know when I was CEO of the MTA in Baltimore, it was a big gig and I was very um, humbled and surprised by hundreds and hundreds of employees that were contracted employees with agencies like WSP and others who were providing us the technical assistance that we didn't have on our own staff. And a lot of folks may not realize that transit agencies, a lot of times, like other government agencies, have caps on the number of pins or the number of positions that they can bring on board, but they're assigned major projects they have to accomplish, but they're not allowed to hire any new staff uh, to do that. For instance, one of the topics we're gonna talk about today is electrification, moving to zero emission, and there's so much technical expertise required that when a transit agency has, you know, a state, uh, the state legislature or the city council or their own board say, hey, you've got to go all zero mission, you know, by 15 years, some of them are like, whoa, wait, we don't have anybody on staff that can, yeah, that's so technical. So companies like yours and the work you're doing, David, there are critical for us to be able to kind of move transit into the next generation of what we're doing.
0: Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Paul. It's a combination of subject matter, expertise, thought, leadership having uh, an outside view of all of the requirements an agency uh, must do uh, and imperatives. And uh, oftentimes it takes outside folks to do that, to help supplement uh, agency staff. And so that's, that's why we're here. And And there are so many challenges and opportunities for agencies right now, in many cases, hard to do with in-house staff
1: alone. And it takes uh, supplemental help. And that's that's why we're here. That's right. So we're going to talk about a few of those topics. Moving on now to kind of a thought leadership, uh, it, which is why I wanted you on here, David, because you know, as a former Secretary of Transportation for a state and all the work you're doing now and have done, I think you're the right voice to talk on really hot topics. So just in the last, in this month of July, there's been um, a, a big article, a big study that came out that showed that as more Americans buy electric vehicles through, it's not really a quirk, but it's through a design of our transportation financing system, This could cause additional challenges. So, for instance, in Maryland, where I'm from, we were part of the State Department of Transportation, the MTA in Baltimore was, and we got our funding through something called the Transportation Trust Fund, which was funded not through general tax dollars, but through fees. And the largest portion of those fees were gas taxes that were paid at the pump, and they paid for the state highway administration, but they also paid for a large part of the transit services that were offered throughout the state. But As mentioned, as people are moving more and more to electric vehicles, the amount of federal taxes and state taxes that are coming in on gas and diesel are dwindling, and that impacts our ability to have revenue for transit. Some places are looking at road charges. Uh, The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, just announced last week that he's asking his staff to look into the technicalities of what he calls a pay-as-you-drive charging across London. You're very familiar with this, Davis. Give us a kind of a scope and context for this.
0: Yeah, this is a massively huge issue. And um, by way of background, uh, everyone who drives a car has been paying gas taxes for a while. Uh, The gas tax at the federal and state levels have been around for, gosh, decades. Yes. Um, But the gas tax is dying a slow death. And unless states and the federal government are prepared to pivot in the years ahead, we're going to have a fiscal cliff and there will not be enough money to maintain our system of roads and bridges, and also to help fund transit. And so, uh, thankfully, over the past few years, many states around the country have been engaged in pilot programs to demonstrate the viability of road usage charge or uh, a mileage-based user fee where you pay by the mile uh, instead of paying uh, a gas tax at the pump. And if you think about it, it really makes a lot of sense. It's very similar to the way in which we pay for electricity or natural gas in our homes. You pay based on how much you use. You know exactly how much you use when you get that invoice. So, it'll work very similar over here with a mileage-based user fee or road usage charge. The exciting thing is that uh, under the uh, IIJA, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, um, there will be a national pilot uh, involving all 50 states plus territories and District of Columbia, uh, and this will be the largest pilot program anywhere because 2,000 participants in every state will be required to uh, sign up for the program. And this will be a a really important test to look at scalability, to look at issues that only the national government uh, can test and and demonstrate things like interoperability and cross border crossings between uh, traffic between the U.S. and Mexico U.S. and Canada. How do you account for those charges? And so that's really something to look forward to in the years ahead. Um and we think that will happen in the not too distant future.
1: Can you can you uh unpack it just a little bit for us? How would it actually work? So I'm a driver and instead of paying my 42 cents total state and federal uh gas tax at the pump, now how am I being tracked and how do I have to pay for it? Well, there there would be different methods
0: of collection. There are in vehicle telematics. There there are devices that that can be sent to the consumer or you plug it into your OBD2 porch. Okay. Um, There are also analog methods where you can take a picture of your odometer reading and upload it. Uh, And so it's really from everything from high tech to medium tech to low tech, (laughs) no tech. Okay. Different methods of collection. Uh, That information would then be sent to a third party account manager um, and then would uh, calculate the amount owed. And then uh, those fees would be then collected and remitted to the state. Either the DOT or DMV or Department of Revenue.
1: How would the average? Ab- I know that there's multiple ways, but what are the ways they're looking at, like to actually charge the consumer? So, for instance, New York is looking at congestion charging, which is something like that. Um, so it's a it's a little you know you read your tag or they or you have an account. Like right now, I have an account, so when I cross bridges, tolls are paid out of my Easy Pass that's on my window. Um, is that the kind of thing we're looking at?
0: Quite possibly, and so. Not to get too far down the road, so to speak, but really, this is a platform because uh, road usage charge uh, can be the platform that would cover everything bridge tolls, congestion pricing, uh, mileage based user fee, transit discounts, EV charging uh, to help pay for your EV charging, other things like that. and it's really a platform, uh, what we call mobility marketplace that can cover all of these things. That's the beauty of a system like this that it that it's, it can cover a wide range of services and programs for the consumer. And just to back up a little further, uh, the concept of road usage charge is actually a little bit different than tolls or congestion pricing because road usage charge is really meant to replace the gas tax as a revenue source, whereas congestion pricing is meant to help manage demand, help encourage greater mode shift, encourage people to take transit or rail or, or bike or walk instead of driving their car all the time.
2: That's a so good distinction. Different,
0: yeah. Different purposes, but the beauty is that you can cover all of those things in one platform. So you wouldn't have to have five or six different devices uh, hanging onto your windshield or anything. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the future. That's where we're going uh, in the future.
1: That's interesting. That's good. So a pilot will be coming, a national pilot. It'll, who, who will oversee that? Which agency? Is it Federal Highway Administration?
0: Yes. Uh, okay. Highway Administration, USDOT, and and um, that's what they're uh, directed to do under IIJA. And I think that will happen sometime in the next few years.
1: All right. So now we're going to switch to a different topic, David, and that is uh, electric vehicles, which I know is, and, and zero emission buses in general. There's a lot happening in this front and you're in a position to kind of talk to us about it, what it takes. Um, I just read an article through QTRIC this last week in Canada, that right now, there's still only about 300 zero-emission buses in Canada, and only 10 of them, I think, based on um, what Josepa, my friend who's head of Cutrix, said, only 10 are hydrogen fuel cell. My buddy, Eddie Robar in Edmonton, is moving there in a big way. I'm actually planning to go to CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association Conference, this November, and film an episode of Transit Unplugged TV with Eddie in Edmonton. Uh, and show what they're doing when it comes to hydrogen and zero emission fuels, et cetera, and hopefully speak there at the conference with him. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about what's going on here in America. I'm just going to give a quick story and that, as context, and then turn it over to you to kind of walk us through it. So what I've seen, kind of from my perspective, talking to transit leaders every day, is that policymakers have made a decision that they want to move to zero emission vehicles, whether it's battery electric, which is the number one kind of... um number one trend, I'd say. And now another hot trend that's happening right now is zero emission buses. I'll actually be uh, at APTA Tech in Anaheim um, at the end of this month. And I'm meeting with Doran Barnes and Doran has the largest hydrogen fleet in America at Foothills Transit. And I've talked about it multiple times. So hydrogen's coming on strong, but there's not, not enough sources of hydrogen. The costs are still high. A lot of people that are looking at it are still very early in the early phases. But what's happening is transit agencies, their boards of directors, their state legislatures are putting in place and mandating timelines like California, where you were at, I think it's 2040. Uh, Here in Maryland, there's a law that passed that said, you know, by a certain date, a certain amount of vehicles in the transit agency have to go to zero emission. But there's a lot involved (laughs) and it's not something that can be done overnight. Talk to us about that and what your take is on all of it.
0: Yeah, you know, it it is very complicated. This transition to zero emission bus is well underway, and many transit agencies are off to a good start, but it is so complicated. And a lot of people don't realize that it's not simply a matter of buying a bunch of electric buses, finding a place to plug them in, and then off you go. Not nearly as simple as that. And and here are a couple of reasons why. First, there's geography and climate. These factors have a huge impact on bus operations, uh, as well as energy demand. Uh, and then you've got bus facilities and, and, and depots. Transit agencies need to plan and build brand new facilities to accommodate zero emission buses. Their current facilities are not designed for, for that. And this is a very expensive proposition. Then there's workforce training and development. Employees need to be thoroughly trained on how to operate an electric bus. Uh, how to maneuver them in the right place when they need to be charged, how to maintain them, and so forth. You're basically training a new category of employee. And you mentioned Don Barnes at Foothill Transit. Um, When I was transportation secretary, I took a ride on one of their brand-new battery electric buses, and the bus operator showed me um, all the moves he had to make to maneuver that bus in the right position to put it in place um, right underneath those overhead chargers. And yeah, intricate, and it took a lot of training for him to do that. And so that, that speaks to the need for workforce development training. And then cost. All of this is incredibly expensive, and there are other daunting challenges. And while they can't be overcome, uh, this is a transition that will not happen overnight, and it's a very heavy lift for any transit agency, regardless of size. And so those are some of the uh, challenges in a
1: nutshell uh, that are in front of transit agencies today. And then you've got the marketplace forces, which are, you know, we've we've got rules in place in America called Buy America, where you can only get buses from certain manufacturers. And they're jammed up years in advance. I heard somebody say, oh, it was my buddy uh, down in Memphis, Gary Rosenfeld. I was just editing one of our Transit Unplugged TV shows with him, a comment he made to me a few months ago. And he said, you know, he thinks we're moving to like a three-year cycle to get new vehicles uh, of of this type because they're so backed up. Tell me about that. What's happening kind of in um, supply chain. For starters, you know, the good
0: news is that there are more and more zero emission bus manufacturers here in the U.S. Uh, And at the same time, there are supply chain challenges that impact delivery. And then battery requirements will have an impact on product availability. So, but, you know, this is literally changing in real time. Yeah. So it's it's an ever-shifting landscape. You know, the other challenge I forgot to mention is energy supply and demand. Yes. That is huge. And this is largely outside of the control of transit agencies. And that's the huge question. You know, energy is in high demand these days and we'll project it to, they will grow. And agencies will need to likely engage with more than one utility to provide service upgrades at bus depots and layover facilities. And, um, there really need to be measures in place to make sure there's enough energy supply to meet demand. And it's pretty surprising how much power is needed at your typical bus depot, especially at peak usage. And so, you know, the bottom line is it's going to take a lot of close collaboration between utilities and transit agencies to make sure energy needs can be met. And again, because this is outside of the control of transit agencies or state DOTs, that's one of the, the things they worry about the most. Will there be enough energy supply to meet demand?
1: That's yeah. the great question. Which is why I think a lot of them are not putting all their eggs in one basket with one type of vehicle. That's what Doran was telling me. That's why he's doing electric and hydrogen. And I know some uh, one CEO told me a few months ago here on the East Coast, Paul, if there's a, a massive, you know, hurricane again like Hurricane Sandy, it could knock us offline for a week or two when it comes to the grid. And my agency is responsible to evacuate the city. And if all my vehicles are literally dead in the water, you know. <laughs> It's not going to be good. So I want to look at more than one source. And do you think that's where we're headed, David, more than just one source of power as a as kind of an industry trend? Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you
0: mentioned hydrogen fuel cell because a lot of people don't, don't realize that is electric as well. Yes. Zero emission. And in addition to Foothill Transit, um, Orange County Transportation Authority and EC Transit up in the Bay Area are also looking at hydrogen fuel cell. Uh, they're, they're doing both uh, battery electric and hydrogen fuel cell. There are advantages and disadvantages with both, and all of these agencies are testing these two different technologies to see uh, which one might work. It turns it could very well be the case that both will work, depending on climate,ography, routes, and and so forth, and so on. And I think it's great that these agencies are looking at both. I got to see uh, OCTA's hydrogen fueling um, station; very impressive setup, and they are operating a fleet of um, fuel cell buses as well as battery electric buses and they are looking at both and seeing which ones might work uh comparing them looking at uh strengths and weaknesses and i think that's really exciting
1: and i do think that's where we're going thank you david i i agree with you i also got to look at um at sunline transit you remember when um they they were one of the first ones to put a hydrogen plant online and um actually they just announced a new ceo i'm excited for her to come in um and uh so it's a lot happening so my last question to you, David, if you could walk us through how those funds—you know—one of the ways that are helping agencies go to zero emission is money from Washington. Talk to us about that and close us out with that. IIJA, huge
0: source of funding for uh, for EV charging infrastructure, and uh, through the US DOT, FTA, FHWA, uh, over seven billion in funding for EV charging infrastructure, and uh, states state DOTs have already received their first. Round of formula funding. And right now, there is a competitive grant program underway. The application deadline closed in June, I believe. Uh, but this is a great opportunity for communities to, to uh, compete for funding and to build charging, EV charging infrastructure in communities, as well as along alternate fuel corridor highways, which have been designated by FHWA. So a lot of money coming down the road for um, EV charging. Uh, I will say, uh, and this is pivoting a little bit to uh, light-duty vehicles, that's the big challenge. And, and it's the same across the board, whether you're talking light-duty, transit buses, or heavy-duty commercial long-haul trucks. Right now, there are not enough EV charging stations to meet demand, and those numbers will, will grow in the years ahead. Uh, and not just the, the number of EV charging, but reliability is somewhat limited. Uh, you hear anecdotes, anecdotal information about uh, the unreliability of EV charging stations. That will change over time. Uh, it'll be a different story two to three years from now when there are more chargers and better chargers. Uh, right now, we're not quite there. Yeah. That will change thanks to this uh, huge investment from uh, the IIJA.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point you make, uh, you know, not just for transit agencies, but for private fleets, uh, for city governments, et cetera, who are moving to those. Uh, electric charging. I, it was brought to my attention by a friend of mine who started a company called EasyVolts And it's basically on your phone, you can, you can look at a map and it'll show you all the charging stations around, how to get there, do they have charge available? And I said, wow, that's a great idea. You know, transit agencies maybe will have their own chargers at their facilities, but for other fleets, government and private fleets, uh, having that information available and accessible to you, or even private individuals to know where to go charge their car. That's key. So I'm happy that there's some money coming for that, too. It's not this isn't all just unfunded mandates, as they say. There's some money coming to help.
0: That's absolutely right. And in California, through my former agency, uh, California State Transportation Agency, we have a discretionary grant program that helps transit agencies with acquisition of zero emission buses, as well as funding to help upgrade or build brand new bus maintenance facilities. And so That's exciting, and a lot of agencies have competed successfully for those funds, and that will need to continue because transit agencies cannot do this alone. They need a lot of help from both federal and state agencies to help with funding and tactical assistance.
1: Well, thank you, David, uh, Kim, for being our Newsmaker guest on today's show, really talking about two of the hottest topics impacting public transit, which is uh, how are we going to continue to pay for transit as people switch to electric vehicles and aren't paying their gas taxes much? and then how do we kind of maneuver from where we're at now to a uh, future where most of our vehicles are zero emission? It's not as easy as plug and play, as you said. And uh, so I appreciate you walking us through that today. Thanks so much, Paul. It's great talking to you and look
0: forward to seeing you soon.
2: Hi, I'm Alaya Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. It's interesting to hear Paul and David Kim talk about the multiple complexities of launching new transit technologies. As is often the case, I start thinking about how to communicate these complex issues to the general public. One important topic to consider is how we talk to the public about how transit is funded. A common misconception and complaint is that too many local dollars go to transit. This can be especially tricky if your transit agency is debuting shiny new technology, which, while more efficient in the long run, is often not cheap right off the bat. While some local funds might be supporting your new initiative, as David points out, it's often the case that federal dollars are giving that support. Communicating this message in the right way means starting early. In this case, since project timelines are long, years in advance. As you push out messages related to your new project, consider leading with where the funds come from. For example, instead of a press release headline that says, we're getting new electric buses, consider leading with, we want a federal grant. Don't stop at headlines. Be upfront about how your initiative is paid for in all your communications, including that information in your talking points. For example, rather than, these electric buses will allow us to improve local air quality, consider something more along the lines of, this grant supports improvements to local air quality by allowing us to buy zero emissions vehicles. And as always, focus on benefits for the end user, meaning the rider and the general public. How will their lives be improved by dollars coming from beyond their community? If you'd like to talk more about communicating about funding or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to head into this next section of Transit Unplugged with two of my good friends, Keith Scott and Rebecca Klein, who are CEOs and co-founders of Tall Small Productions. They were on our podcast two weeks ago. We're super excited to have them back today. Welcome. Oh,
3: it's great to be here, Paul. Thank you.
4: Thank you for having us back.
1: Yeah, for those of you who didn't hear the first episode, I encourage you to go back two weeks and listen to them. We talk about fending off filler words and weak language, about how to improve your body language, and how to watch your tone. These are all geared toward helping us improve in our career, helping us move up that ladder of success. And today, we want to talk about a way which uh, sometimes on the negative side of things can hurt us, and that is our own self-talk. I mean, Rebecca, we all have like this internal dialogue going on, don't we?
4: We do. We tend to tell ourselves things we would never say to anybody else in our lives. We speak to ourselves incredibly poorly, and we think no one can hear it. But it ends up showing in our body language, in our tone, in our confidence.
3: We say things to ourselves that we would never say to friends or loved ones. I mean, we walk into a meeting, I'm going to blow this, I'm going to mess this up. I can't believe they promoted me. I must have just gotten lucky. I can't believe I'm in this job. Soon they're gonna find out that I'm really gonna mess everything
4: up. A lot of I don't deserve to be here or they're gonna find out that I am a fraud.
1: Wow. Uh, you know that's for me personally I've never had those thoughts but I know that so many people do I'm probably the opposite I'm too confident <laughs> which and maybe even <laughs> cocky which has probably got me in trouble once in a while yeah the flip side of the coin but I know so many people have anxiety uh you know about speaking up in public they I've heard that you know surveys say that people fear public speaking more than they do death on surveys <laughs> so they're literally scared to death of speaking but why is this soft self-talk so important I mean nobody else outside is hearing it it's just something we're telling ourselves
3: Because the self-talk over and over again, let's say you say the word sorry, or I'm not good at this or something. When you repeat any mantra over and over again, you become that thing. It's like the same. if you eat hot dogs all day long, you'll eventually start to look like a hot dog, right? (laughs) The fact is you become what you eat, you become what you say. And if you're constantly saying that about yourself, you will hold your body that way. You will talk to people that way. You will get abused by other people because you have put yourself down. And people know that you're weak. And it goes back to our previous conversation.
4: And the other problem is you can't turn it off. Once that inner critic fires up, you could be giving a presentation and your self-talk is constantly interrupting you. It will sabotage you. And we teach our clients how to use your self-talk instead to soar, how to use it to pump yourself up and be a cheerleader rather than a saboteur.
3: So many people will come to us and say, you know, I can't do this job. I can't accomplish this thing. I'm not good enough for this. They're going to find out I don't have the right degree. Or I grew up in an area, if people knew where I grew up, they wouldn't want me. This amount of self-talk that we have, this negative criticism of ourselves, is is damaging, and it's also damaging productive lives that could add to our society.
1: What I mean, just a question. Why do you think that is so prevalent nowadays? I mean, I hear so many people talk about that. Uh, we talked about you know, my favorite show Survivor on the last episode, but in the post interviews, I would say uh, the great majority of the people that were, you know, made it to the end all had self-doubt. When I got here, I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think I would make it. I couldn't do this, I can't. Where's that all coming from?
4: One theory, and we notice this with a lot of our clients, when we talk to them about the root of any negative self-talk they have, it often traces back to something that happened when they were a little kid at that moment around age eight, nine, or 10, where you begin to realize, wait, people are judging me. Maybe they stood up in class and everyone laughed at them. Oh yeah. You still will feel those feelings to this day. We had a woman once, we were at a national conference and we asked her to draw a circle. It was part of an exercise where you were going to put words in the circle, it had nothing to do with art ability. She began crying.
3: She began crying because a teacher, when she drew this picture before, walked by, grabbed the picture, ripped it up and said, you should never draw. You are a horrible artist. Oh, my
1: gosh. And here
3: we're talking 30, 40 years later, you know, high-end management position. So the fact is, these things resonate and stay with our minds. Both our dads had teachers in elementary school said, so you're not going to amount to anything. Mm. They've both been successful. So, this self-talk, but I think the secondary, and to your point, Paul, is that society has, through social media. Yeah. And I blame it is that we are watching so many people, whether they're successful and we think, my God, how did they get this? Or how did they get that promotion? Or how did they get to this place? And we are really damaging our own psyche by comparing ourselves to other people. And yet we don't know how they really got there.
4: We don't know all the struggles they faced. And it's very damaging when people only post about their wins. We saw someone once who had a whole podcast about life's failures. And we thought it was brilliant because it's through the failures that you learn And when all you're seeing are other people's wins, it's easy for that negative self-talk to pipe up.
1: So what can you do when your inner critic pipes up at the worst possible moments?
4: There are lots of things you can do, and it's all about finding the one that works for you. The first thing that we always have people do is to choose a name of a person you don't like, of a food you can't stand, of something that doesn't have good thoughts associated with it, and name your self-talk. Because the key is you have to evict it from your mind to disassociate
3: it with it being you. Because if you, as Rebecca said, if you associate with being you, then you're always going to have it, but you need to name it. For example, mine is named Frank, and I apologize for any Franks out there, but a guy <laughs> Frank in high school could stand, probably still can't stand. So when that voice comes into my brain, I'm like, Frank, you got to get out of here. Now look, don't say this out loud or people are going to wonder about you. You want to keep this inside your own head. Secondary is running things for the self-talk, running things through a test, a battery of questions. And we developed a battery of questions, and we have a few we could talk about.
4: And we find they work. We've collected them from therapists, from our own clients, from things we've picked up along the way. The first one is, what would you tell a friend? If a friend said to you, this idea will never work, what would you tell them? It's probably going to be very different from what you would say to yourself.
3: Another question you can ask is: Have you fact checked this? If you say, "Oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm never going to get hired for this one job because I'm not qualified," have you really fact checked that? Have you looked at the qualifications? Do you not fit those qualifications? Fact checking things because many times we make assumptions, but we don't check the facts.
4: Another one we look at is: Are you fortune telling? Similar to the fact check, are you wildly thinking about things that could go wrong in the future? Without any reason to think.
3: Or one that I still do and struggle with, it's overgeneralizing. Mm-hmm. If one thing happens, then everything's gonna be messed up this way. That mm. if it's just one issue, that it's
1: all gonna go down. People that say, with my <laughs> luck, you know, blah, blah, right. blah, that kind of a thing. Absolutely. Exactly.
4: Or an example of that is you go to a networking event and you walk up to someone and you mess up their name, you can't remember it. And the whole rest of the night, You are agonizing over what that person thinks of you. You get afraid to say anybody else's name in case you mess it up. Uh. And people do that. They take one experience and pour it into everything else that night.
1: That's good. We need to do a uh, a future session on on that kind of on networking. I think that would be yes. very powerful because so many of our best jobs come from people in our secondary or tertiary relationships, and not our best friends. And being able to network is a key to, I think, uh, career success. It certainly has been mine. It's a chapter in my okay. first book called "I Met a Guy," and it's every job I've gotten has because I met a guy. It, I love that.
3: Well, we can say enough about that and in networking and knowing. When you go into a room, what do you do? Who do you talk to? And then also knowing when to get out of the room. Oh, that's good. Well, around and think they burn themselves out, but knowing yeah, let the room get in
1: and get. All in. right, let's plan on that for a third episode sometime in the future. Love Man, it. And this stuff mm-hmm. is so good. All right, what is uh, what are some fixes? Okay, so we've talked about the negative, but you know, other than naming, you know, which I really like that name it. Uh, what are some other fixes?
2: Along
4: with running through a whole set of questions you also can combat the negativity with positivity. Okay. And for every single negative, you need three positives. And we'll have our clients turn around their statements. If they say, I'm never gonna get this job, they have to come up with three affirmative statements about it. And we don't like toxic positivity either. It's not like, I deserve this job, this is my fate. It's more along the lines of, if I don't get this job, I'm going to take it as a stepping stone to find the next.
3: Also, Paul, one of the things we've noticed is a lot of people who have negative self-talk struggle with it. They need to gain a new circle of friends because they're hanging out with people who help reverberate the sound of that self-talk. They're not healing it. They're letting them go with it. And they're suggesting and they're saying, yeah, you probably won't make it. Many times they have really damaging friends who don't help them with the self-talk
4: or damaging relationships. That's a big one too. When significant others are putting each other down, that can also send people into a spiral of negative self-talk.
1: So how can you use your self-talk for good?
4: You can use it for good by pumping yourself up before you go into a room, letting yourself know what's the worst thing that could happen here. I might fumble on a word. Who cares? Other people in the audience are thinking, wow, she's brave to be up there. Cheering yourself on with positive phrases that are not positive to the point where they're fantasy.
3: You can also do what sports players do all the time is for your self-talk, walk yourself through something. Let's say you have to give a presentation. Picture yourself getting out of your car, walking into the building, seeing the setup, walking to the stage, imagining people smiling and clapping or being appreciative of what you're saying, what they say afterwards. Walk yourself through it so that when you go to do it, you've already done it. You don't have the self-talk because you've already created that image and movie in your mind, and that helps you with, that are different than making the plays. It's making the plays when you're doing a presentation or have some type of work activity.
4: It's very similar to sports. Something else you can do, let's say you're walking into a room to present and you're terrified of all the people you don't know in that room, you can get there early. Keith and I do this. Every time we give a presentation, we show up about 30 minutes early, we walk around shaking hands, we treat that room as though it's our home people are coming into, we shake everyone's hands as they walk in the door. And then we're with people we've made a connection with. And that changes the whole energy. Yeah. also
3: changes the people coming into the room because they might have self-talk. Like, I don't know why I'm going to listen yeah, to you. Super, yeah. Right. And so that changes their self-talk and maybe they become more positive, which just makes the positive energy in the room grow.
1: That's wonderful. I mean. It's funny that you did that next, because I was going to say, what about this? That's exactly what I do, guys. I mean, I've spoken Mm -hmm. over 100 times at conferences and events over the last year. And every time I get, every chance I get, I do just what you said. I walk the room. I greet everybody, shake their hand. I'm the king of small talk, you know, have a, have a, an engagement point. But I also go up on the stage if I can get there even earlier, stand behind the platform, get the feel for the room, walk around, even do crazy things like touch the chairs and just get the vibe of the room It's the best way I can describe it. What do you think of that?
3: We're speaking the same language, Paul. Just, we do it. We, we walk around the same thing because it's all, it's, it's like a, when a a dog comes into a house for the first time. It runs around the house. That's a good analogy. Yeah. It tries to feel it out to feel comfortable as humans. Well, we're not that far off and you've got to feel comfortable in your surroundings. Yeah.
4: In your territory, but don't mark.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This last, uh, and the other thing is, I think since we're talking about speaking is, um, in, in terms of preparation, you know, this is, um, we're talking, you know, prepping your mind and getting your game ready, but also going up front, what I have found is uh, also helps me identify any problems uh, that could be there. So for instance, the room's too hot, the room's too cold, it's too dark, it's too light. Um, the projector screen isn't working right. I want to get my my PowerPoint loaded up and run through it one time before everybody walks into the room, just like a band does a sound check, right? Yeah, Ooh, exactly.
3: Right. Absolutely. And, and Paul, it's funny, you strike what a philosophy you have. that yes. your, your listeners at first might be like, oh my gosh, it's horrible, <laughs> but I'll tell you do it anyway. We have a philosophy of lowering our expectations, and that's not our expectations of our work body. Where we go into a conference, we expect, as you just said, the lighting not to work, the projector <laughs> the sound not to work, the chairs to be in the wrong order, to be too high or cold. We expect it, so when it is on, on the right side... It makes life wonderful. Oh, then remember. you're
4: on slap. Yeah. Because you always see people in conferences running around without their heads on because they're all upset that the room is missing five chairs. But if you go in expecting no chairs, you're really happens to see the ones that are there. I
1: love that. I've never if, heard
3: that before. If we do this with yes. everything we do, we just don't expect it to go wrong. Something to be wrong. And then when you get there and it works out, your day is It's good. great
4: for a marriage, right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Marriage <laughs> Well, it is a game of managing expectations, right? Relationships it, are oh. too. This is wonderful stuff. Hey, if people want Thank to get you. more information, uh, where can they go?
4: Head on over to tallsmallproductions.org.
1: That's great. And uh, you two have been wonderful guests today. I really appreciate uh, all thank you've you. shared. And I really do want to do at least one more show later in the future. We'll run these two back-to-back, as we've said. But uh, we, I, I really would like to do that other topic we just talked about, which right. is how to work a room. we we'll
4: oh, be there.
1: We'd love to do it. Okay, great. Th-
4: thank you for us. Thank yeah, you for thank everything. you.
1: And two fellow Marylanders, great to have you on the show. The thank best you. Best state.
5: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged with our special guests, David Kim, Rebecca Kleinscott, and Keith Scott. Now, coming up next week, we have the second CEO Roundtable that was recorded live at the UITP Global Summit in Barcelona. This panel features Carla Purcell, CEO of Yara Trams, Jeremy Yap, Deputy Chief Executive of LTA in Singapore, Paul Skatellis president of APTA, and Dorval Carter, president of the Chicago Transit Authority. This is a great roundtable featuring perspectives from the Asia-Pacific region and North America. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at info at transitunplugged.com. Transit Unplugged is brought to you by Medaxo. At Medaxo, We're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling those stories. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.